Hey guys, my name's James. Welcome to the Property Renovation Podcast. This week's episode is sponsored by makemymortgage.co.uk. They're a UK-based mortgage advice and brokering service that have a great reputation for getting people on the ladder, remortgaging, buy-to-lets, and much more. Go check them out by going to makemymortgage.co.uk forward slash podcast. Now let's get into today's show. Welcome to the Property Renovation Podcast. I'm your host, James Woodham. And I'm your co-host, Juliet. Juliet has a decade of architectural experience in the US. And James has completed over 250 home renovations in the UK. Together, James and I have over 35 years experience designing and building homes. This podcast was created to give you, the homeowner, the power and the knowledge to get your project done right, on time, and with quality workmanship. We've been going for just over a year now, and we have over 50 episodes for you to listen and absorb all the information from key experts in the industry. That's right. We've spoken to industry leaders, builders, architects, and the best part of what we do is hear from you, the homeowner, what went right and what went wrong. We really hope you like listening to this podcast. And if you do, please leave us a review. Reviews expose us to more listeners, which in turn means we can help more homeowners save money and avoid the chance of things going wrong. With that said, let's get into today's show. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Property Renovation Podcast. My name is Juliette. And for today's episode, we are doing a quick start guide to space planning. We hope it's really helpful for those of you planning or just dreaming of your next project. And um, actually beyond just being helpful for those of you who are actively planning a project, I actually really hope this encourages all of our listeners to become more aware of the actual scale and physical dimensions of spaces as you go through your everyday life. It's my personal opinion that you can never have too much um, experience or knowledge in terms of knowing how big spaces are, how small they are, and how they actually feel and function in real life. Because once you start paying attention to all sorts of those sorts of actual um, measurements in everyday life, you will be armed with so, so, so much more information and experience and just knowledge of what you do and you don't like when it comes time for you to do your next project. And so I hope it's helpful to everyone. And yeah, I hope you enjoy the episode. Before diving into today's material, I wanted to say sort of two quick caveats about today's episode. The first caveat is for space planning, I'm only going to be talking about planning in terms of plan view. And so that means we're looking at a floor plan and we're talking only about the length and the width of rooms and different clearances that you may want to consider. I'm not going to be talking about the actual heights, standard heights of different things. That's a little bit too much information for this episode. And I think right now I just want to sort of really focus in on um, the spatial arrangement of things and not necessarily things in um, section view or an elevation view where we're taking into account the different relationships of uh, heights from one object to another. And the second caveat I want to talk about is uh, just that I am an architect living and working in the United States, which means that Unfortunately, for a lot of our listeners, that means I'm going to be talking in terms of feet and inches. I'm going to be using the old imperial system of measurement because for some very odd reason, the United States has decided to remain a bit archaic and we have not um, graduated to the 21st century using metric. But in terms of 
translating all of today's measurements from imperial to metric, I found in my experience that while it's not a direct mathematical translation from feet and inches to millimeters, very, very often, almost 100% of the time, if you just simply do the math on the numbers that I'm giving you, there is a standard metric equivalent. Not exact, you know, it was always a few millimeters off, but, you know, something very similar, and which makes sense because the scale at which we're talking about today, since we're not talking about like a big civic building or something institutional, something scaled to the street or to the city, simply talking about homes and residences, everything is scaled to the human figure. And so since we're all humans, these things and these standards are relatively universal. All right. So for today, I'm just sort of going to go through the different uh, major spaces in a home. And these are the standards that I personally use when designing my spaces. And yeah, hopefully you guys find it helpful. All right. So let's start with what is often called the heart of the home, which is the kitchen. So when you're starting to lay out your kitchen, Let's start with your counters. So counters are almost always, a working counter is almost always two feet deep. Every once in a while, you will get the odd built-in, you know, where we just sort of want a little bit of extra uh, covered space or a little, you know, space to just put something down on top. And that might be more shallow, like 18 inches or 12 inches. But a working counter, the standard, like a standard cabinet that you can buy in a standard countertop, that is two feet deep. Um, the clearances that I think are important to know is that if you have a counter and then an island on the other side, that like sort of a galley kitchen, you need a minimum of 36 inches between the two counters or an island. Um, in a bigger homes, we have gone to as big as 54 inches between two different counters. Um, generally, though, I find that a lot of times um, 42 inches is sort of the sweet spot between two different counters. It's roomy enough that sort of two people can occupy that space and kind of get, you know, move past each other while not having to reach too far to grab something from one counter to another. Um, if you do have a lot of kids or depending on how you like to use your space, though, sometimes you do want a bigger, you know, a bigger aisle between your two counters. Um, another thing in terms of planning out kitchens is... There's always that uh, the classic work triangle that you want to consider. And so when you're planning out all your workspaces and you're planning out, you know, where where's your stove going to go, where's your uh, sink going to go, and where your refrigerator is going to go, make sure that when you open your oven, there's still going to be, like, you're going to have to back out away from your oven, obviously, because the door and the heat and, you know, safety and everything. You're still going to need enough room behind, between the oven and right in front of the oven in order to open it and comfortably get something heavy, like a big turkey, you know, in and out of the oven. And same thing for a refrigerator. Be aware of how the door is swinging and you want to make sure that there's plenty of room for the door to swing open and for you to be standing in front of that to access your fridge. And also make sure that, you know, you can really open the fridge doors really wide, probably usually a little bit more than a 90 degree open for the doors, maybe 110 degree 10 degrees opening for the doors. So that way you can fully get inside, take out all the shelves to clean them or just to put in a big sort of catering tray. You want to make sure that you're not too tight against a wall or some other um, wall appliance. You want, really want to be able to open those doors fully. 
And also just in terms of talking about that classic work triangle with the fridge, the stove and the sink, there's a lot, I feel like on, if you go look online, I feel like there's a lot of opinions, but I feel like this is where you can get a little bit more personal. Like I know some of my clients, they just really, they didn't like the look of a fridge. And so they decide to put their fridge in their pantry. I know that would drive some chefs and some people crazy, but you know, other people really loved it. And so I think there's always a balance there between whether or not this is your forever home, whether or not you want to make sure that this has more of an easy resale value, but just, I would be willing to, I think that it's, you can go a little bit more personal here since the kitchen is like we just said, it's the heart of the home and it's used so often that you can, I do encourage you to personalize the space because, you know, you are spending your time and effort and money to make this kitchen truly yours and truly into a space that you and your family will enjoy. All right. So oftentimes right off of the kitchen, we have the dining rooms. And so if you're planning a new dining room, I would say that the general width of the dining room, you want to be 12 feet. And so let me just quickly walk you through why I say 12 feet. So the average dining table is uh, 30 inches wide. And so that's two and a half feet. To comfortably pull out a chair on either side, you need three feet. And so with the chairs on either side, three feet each, that's six feet, plus the two and a half feet of the table, we're already at eight and a half feet width. And so if you have 12 feet wide, 12 foot wide dining table, dining room, that, and you have eight and a half feet dedicated to the table and to the chairs, that gives you just three and a half feet on either side for circulation. You know, when the table's full, people are sort of walking, standing up. And so that's pretty full at full capacity. But oftentimes, you know, dining rooms are not used to full capacity. That may be more for a special occasion, for a big gathering or for a party. And so for an everyday sort of situation with the chairs more pushed in, with 30 foot wide table, chairs pushed in, you'll have comfortably just about three feet, maybe a little bit over three feet on, depending on how, you know, how far you push the t- chairs under the table, but you'll have three feet on either side to comfortably walk around. And so I do prefer to see more like 13 to 14 feet, probably 14 feet for a dining room if it's really going to be used for large gatherings because the 12 feet doesn't necessarily take into account how you may want to furnish the space. Like if you know you have a furniture, like um, a sideboard or buffet space, that just adds, you know, an extra foot, foot and a half, two feet to what you want in terms of the width of the room. And of course, the length of the room is basically how, <laughs> how big and how long you want that table to be. All right. So let's move on to living rooms. So again, I like to say um, living rooms, minimum width of 12 feet. And so that's, I think 12 feet, you can comfortably get like a sofa in front of a fireplace or in front of like a media center or a TV, and you'll have room to circulate behind it. Living rooms are a bit harder to give standards because there's so many different ways to arrange um, a living room. And uh, a lot of times, especially now that like the living room and dining room are combined. And so how you want to have the chairs face or not face the open floor plan of dining kitchen flow, people can get very um, specific about how they want that relationship, how they imagine themselves occupying that space. But 
We do find in our uh, private architectural practice that if you have a space that's less than 12 feet, circulation tends to get really cramped or you're sitting too close to the TV or there's just not a lot of room to have a coffee table. So I would, if you can, minimum 12 feet. Again, 14 feet, I think, is much more comfortable. Um, if think if you go beyond 18 feet in width, it can start to feel pretty big which isn't necessarily bad, but you don't, you also don't want to feel lost in the space or you don't necessarily want to have, if you're trying to be efficient, you know, keeping your mind in your budget and the overall square footage that you want to build, you don't necessarily want to have spaces that you can't even furnish easily and that aren't really going to be used. And so while you want your spaces to feel spacious and generous and you can sort of flow through them, this also, it's also not necessary to go just big, just for the sake of being big, because there's a, there is a certain breaking point when things stop to feel gracious and spacious and just sort of stupidly <laughs> big. <laughs> so I hope that makes sense. Um, one of my tips is I would look at a lot of real estate listings if I were you, because real estate listings, there's at least here in America, there's almost always, um, room descriptions, room dimensions associated with the listings. And so you can go through all the photos. And if you find a layout and a scale of a space that you like, I would just look at what um, is listed as the dimensions. Now, keep in mind that these dimensions are always very rough. I have never, ever, ever, ever been given a project being like, oh, here's the real estate plan. This should be good enough. It's never good enough to build. Like things are always like a foot off, but it's a really good place to start if you have no idea how big like a 12 by 18 foot room is. If you can't picture that, if you have no idea what that feels like, start to pay attention, start to keep, start to look at all those listings and pay attention to, you know, okay, so that's what, you know, a 15 by 25 big, huge open dining living room space is. That's what it feels like. That's kind of how you can arrange furniture. Like, is it tight? Is it, is it spacious, et cetera. And then also even better is if you can just go to open houses and, you know, maybe if you have a little laser measure, take that along, shoot some measurements, just so you can physically, physically being in a space and knowing how big it is. And I know you said I wouldn't talk about this, but even measuring like the ceiling heights, that's a huge, huge help. Sometimes I go just because um, if there's a condition that's a little wonky that I've never physically designed or been in that space before. And if I find a listing with an open house, I will go just to get a better sense of scale and what may or may not work for whatever particular project I'm working on. So that's my tip. Go to look at real estate. All right. So we've talked about kitchens, dining rooms, and living rooms. So now let's sort of move into the more private spaces of the home. And so hallways, some homes have them, some homes don't, but uh, hallways Again, a minimum of three feet width is like absolute minimum, like absolute minimum. That will feel tight. It'll probably feel a little more like a tunnel. Um, it'll probably be a little bit, not probably, it will be more challenging to move big furniture in and out of those spaces because um, if you ever have a tight corner, you know, you're moving that big bed frame from the hall, trying to turn it to get into the bedroom, it's going to be pretty tight. Four feels a lot better. Five feet feels great, especially if you're doing space planning in, um, like in a basement where things already sort of feel a little lower, a little darker. So if you can give five feet to a hallway and just make it lit well, either can you get like a little, um, 
window, a window well, shining some natural light down in there, or just, you know, light it really well in terms of like recess lights, overhead lights, or some wall sconces. That really helps to the basement to not feel like a dungeon. Um, again, hallways, I don't, it's hard because you, you think about, you always want to prioritize the inhabited spaces, like a bedroom, a living room, more than you want to a hallway. But at the same time, you're probably going to be walking up and down that hallway every single day. And so you don't want that part of the house to feel cramped either because that cramped feeling, I mean, you, you physically remember that cramped feeling, even though you move from one generous space to another, it's sort of like this weird bottleneck pinch in the plan. And so it does change your experience of the overall space, even if all the other spaces are generous. Again, I would want to, I'd be more willing to compromise in hallway space on the others, but it's not a completely separate thing that doesn't affect the overall feel and flow of a space. Also, if you do have a long hallway, um, like, and you do plan on using it as a gallery wall, or say you're an art lover and you want to plan sort of a gallery space, you think about um, the items that you want to show, the art that you may want to hang, and keep in mind um, how people are going to view them. If it's a narrow hallway, there's no real room to stand back and appreciate the piece. So you may want to, for that reason alone, give yourself a more generous hallway. Or you can have a hallway double as a library if you have built-ins, or you can have it double as like a reading nook, or you could even put in like a very, like a small um, office nook there. So there's other ways to sort of give yourself more width in that hallway, but still use the space effectively for your books, for your art, for an office, um, storage for other items, etc. Hey guys, it's James. Getting on the property ladder these days can be really, really tough. And with all of the advice on the internet, how can you be sure that you're getting the right advice? The guys at MakeMyMortgage.co.uk are super amazing. They're friendly and they offer down-to-earth advice. But most important, they offer a wide range of lending options. So if you're planning to buy your first home, buy to let, or just flip a property, MakeMyMortgage.co.uk are the ones for you. For your free consultation, go to makemymortgage.co.uk forward slash podcast. Now let's get back to today's show. All right. So thinking about hallways, hallways lead to, oftentimes they lead to bedrooms and bathrooms. So first let's talk about bedrooms. So bedrooms, the absolute minimum width I would recommend for a bedroom is 10 feet. And so, and oftentimes with bedrooms, um, it's the width is much more important than the length. And when I say the width of a bedroom, um, so say you're in the bedroom or your bedroom and you're standing at the foot of the bed, the width is parallel to your shoulders. And so a bedroom will oftentimes feel more generous if it has more width than length because you tend to not use the length as much. Like there might be a dresser on the opposite wall to to the bed, or you use that space between the foot of the bed and the dresser or the wall to go to your access, the closet to access an ensuite bathroom. But a lot of times the spaciousness of the bedroom depends on, you know, you have enough room for nice side tables, nightstands on either side. Both people can access it without feeling you know, either side of the bed without feeling cramped. Um, 
Also, of course, this really depends on the furniture that you have or the furniture that you want in there. If it's a kid's room, of course, 10, 12 feet is much more reasonable. If you, if you really have that huge California king, of course, you're going to want to have even more space. Um, when you do tend to get bedrooms that are very um, long, that's when you generally see a bed, the whole sort of bedroom, like the sleeping part of the bedroom, and then you have sort of like a mini sitting area as well. That's generally how um, our clients have set up that space to use. And it's also, that's, I mean, I'm not sure what else you would put in that space because you're generally not, I mean, for, we have had clients who are, um, there's more pied-à-terres sort of situations where it's not um, set up for like everyday family living. And so there's oftentimes like maybe a home office in that section, but it's in terms of resale and best use of space, it's probably not the best, it's not the most efficient way to use the space. Probably I would say not that it's not great. It's, it ends up looking great, but it's not, not the most efficient, if that makes sense. All right. So for bedrooms, closets, when you plan a closet, you're going to need um, from the inside of stud to inside of stud, inside the closet to store hanging clothes. You need two feet depth Two two will feel a bit more generous, but two feet, absolute minimum. Um, if you want, it seems like everyone wants an Island <laughs> in like a big master closet. So just draw that out. So you're going to have say, so say you have hanging on either side with an Island in the middle. So you're going to have two feet for the hanging. You want probably at least three feet for, you know, circulation around the island. So you have two feet, three feet, a two foot wide, let's just say two foot wide island. And so right away there we have seven feet of width. But then to have, you know, an island so you can circulate all around it, then you're going to have to add another three feet of circulation on the other side of the island and then the other two feet. So that's seven feet plus the three feet. So we have 10 feet. So we have 12 feet. So really people always think it's like, Oh, like, let's just have, you know, let's, they, everyone wants them, but they don't really understand that to get that generous, uh, island, like luxurious, you know, master, uh, walk-in closet where it's this like nice dressing room as well. They don't realize that oftentimes that space is just as big as the bedroom. And so if you want that in your home, um, you basically have to, whatever, <laughs> you basically have to have another space, at least the size of a medium bedroom to get that experience. And oftentimes with, um, our clients that we found and when I've actually gone into their spaces, especially when there's been like a movable Island in the master closet, that three feet of space between the island and the hanging clothes isn't enough. They usually like push it to one side when they really want to access the one side of the hanging closet and the island because you're standing there, you're accessing your clothes, you're turning to the island, you may be pulling out a drawer. And so, again, it's almost like the kitchen. Again, you kind of 42 inches is ideal. You can get away with three. But to have that sort of luxurious, um, spacious feel, 42 inches between the hanging and the island is a lot better. It also gives you more space just to sort of, you know, pick things out, maybe stand in the middle, look at a mirror, etc. All right. So last but not least, let's talk about bathrooms. So bathrooms, city living, the minimum depth of a bathroom is five feet and any sort of standard tub, like shower tub, that's going to be five feet from stud to stud. And so when I say depth, I'm talking about, say all your plumbing, you know, the t- 
toilet, the sink, and the shower head, they're all on one wall. So it's the short distance. And then to um, have, again, that same um, layout where the toilet, the sink, and the shower, the minimum depth of that, you know, again, if you're... If there's all of those fixtures on one plumbing wall, you're standing at the sink looking at the mirror, the width I'm talking about parallel to your shoulders, that width is probably minimum seven feet. And that's pretty tight. Definitely doable. It happens all the time. And I feel like if you live in the city, you just sort of expect spaces to be a little small and maybe quirky. So seven feet minimum. Um, if you want a dual counter, I mean, a dual sink, uh, I like to say five feet minimum. That's nice. I've seen smaller. Again, this is sort of where it's personal. Like, is it more important to actually have the counter space for you to use? Or is it more important that, you know, each person has their own tap? Also, different things that you can do is maybe use, um, if you have more of a trough sink, you know, where both spigots sort of uh, drain into the same bowl, you can get um, two two plumbing sink fixtures, but maybe it won't take up as much width, but of course you will lose counter space. And there's ways to, you know, get around that by adding, you know, like little floating shelves above the sink, etc. But if you want a master, like say if you're working in tight spaces, you want the master bath, you know, you want two sinks, try and give yourself a minimum of five feet, anything beyond five feet will just make it feel even better. But I would start with five feet and then you can play with um, going down, maybe using a trough sink, Maybe, you know, using one large sink and then a large sort of like uh, dressing or vanity area, just counter, give yourself more storage that way. Again, it's your place. Do what you want. You can figure it out. Again, go to um, real estate list, look at real estate listings, look at open homes and really see the different um, ways people have sort of planned their bathrooms. I think that's that's great. I, I look at listings actually all the time for my ideas, too. So last thing that I think we should talk about is door sizes. So if you are planning a new build or a, uh, a gut reno and you're moving a lot of doors, there are, I've generally found that, um, there's like two different design, two different design thoughts on this. The first design thought is that you want an opening like on center at the end of a hall or there's people who, you know, who want to have that a door or something. Yeah. Basically to terminate a viewpoint access. And then there's other architects I know who just freaking hate <laughs> having a door at the end of a hall or like the door as an access, like a Vista point at the end of a long, you know, access. So I would, that I think that's a personal thing. And so I would, Again, pay attention to different spaces. You know, go to a friend's home, real estate listings, et cetera, to see what you like. Maybe you want, instead of looking down a hall and seeing a door, maybe you want to look down a hall and see a small piece of furniture. Or maybe you want to see artwork, et cetera. Um, but do keep that in mind when you're placing your doors. So door widths. So doors into bathrooms, we generally keep pretty small. We keep them to like two eight to two four. A small door, say just into a water closet, like just the toilet. We often, I don't know why, we designed some really pretty big homes, but we're always cramped in space in those bathrooms. And so a lot of times those doors are pretty small, like they're two four, two six. Um, I generally like to make the doors swinging doors. 
a lot of times um, clients or interior designers that always want to pocket those doors. But sometimes that does make it harder for the plumbing. That does make it a bit harder in terms of playing the electrics and the it's all doable. You can get like pancake junction boxes and they can fit inside the same wall where the pocket is, but it is something to think about. Um, but also think about how you move through the space because when you have a swinging door and, the, and if the door swing is planned correctly, you can always um, sort of quickly walk into a space and open the door while you keep moving when it's a swinging door. Almost always with a pocket door, you'll come up to whatever space is closed off by the pocket door and you'll have to stop, like physically stop your momentum, pull open or push to the side the pocket door and then you get to open the space. And it's fairly subtle, but I have found that some people after living in a space for a while, they just get really annoyed with pocket doors and other people love the pocket doors. So again, that's something very personal, but I do think it's worth some, it's worth considering and knowing how you want to actually move through the space. And, um, I am much more likely to say, okay, cool, let's do a pocket door here. If I know the doors are not going to be active, like open and closed that often, if it's going to be open and closed all the freaking time, I always discourage against using a pocket door. But in some cases, um, when you just don't want to see the door, when you know you want it open, of course, pocket doors are a great way to go. But again, you have to that does change your planning in terms of you need to make sure that there is a wall for the door to pocket into. And um, same thing again with barn doors. You need to make sure that wherever the door gets pushed aside to, there's there's room for that. So sometimes there's a good place for it to pocket away. Sometimes there's really not. Um, doors into bedrooms. So again, two different thoughts on this. A lot of times it feels nice to have a private scaled door into a bedroom. So maybe a door that's like 2.8, 2.10. Um, because I know it's a very small difference, like 2.8 to like a three foot door. It's only four inches, which is basically the width of your palm, give or take. But it does make a difference in terms of like just how large that door slab feels when you're opening and closing it. Um, I do know some designers and some clients who really want um, the three-foot door because it makes it easy to get large furniture in and out of those spaces, but it can feel, but it is, I mean, it is a big door. I mean, your standard entrance door from the street into your home is a three-foot door. And so I personally think that you can go down to 210. I like, I think that's a good compromise between having a slightly smaller scale door that's sort of, even if it's subconsciously or unconsciously signaling to you, the user, to, you know, everyone that this is a private space um, instead of a large, large public space. But um, a lot of times we will go with a three foot door in our practice for just ease of moving in and out big pieces of furniture, like a king size bed there. That's, <laughs> those are pretty big and it can be hard to get those around, you know, a hallway and then into a room. Um, so I think that's it. I hope today was helpful. If you have any more questions, just please leave us a message on our Facebook page. You can find that at www.facebook.com forward slash group forward slash the property renovation podcast. And yeah, see you guys soon. Thanks. If you're planning a renovation or you're moving into your first new home, then the Akiva Toolkit could be the solution you need. 
With its easy-to-use package of 10 documents, you are able to manage time, budget, and the communication between your builders and you to ensure the project is complete to satisfaction first time round. The Akiva Toolkit saves you money and time. It's for the first time renovator and the renovator that wants to do things better the second time round. It's a fraction of the cost compared to paying for mistakes or repeating work that's already done. Go to akivatoolkit.com and get your project off to a perfect start today.